This is Creatives Incorporated, where we take a look at the process and inspiration of creators. I'm Travis, your host, a location sound mixer and commercial photographer based in Pensacola, Florida. Today is Quarantine Special 6 with guest Stephen Baker. Beyond succeeding in the burdensome task of being one of my mentors, Steve is a well-traveled media professional with 30 years experience working in diverse roles as an in-house and freelance producer, director, camera operator, with a focus as a sound mixer for the past decade. Steve has worked on shows from America's Got Talent to House Hunters and on projects for the NFL, Nat Geo, The Weather Channel, Destination America, and HGTV. Steve, how are you doing today? I am awesome, brother. Thank you very much for having me. Man, I'm glad you could join me on short notice. And so I want to make a note for the audience that depending on when they're listening to this, the show might seem out of date for some references. So we are recording this on May 29th, 2020. And uh, to kick it off, uh, I want to talk a little bit about your early life. So uh, as an adult, you started serving in the Coast Guard before you spent some time as a postal worker, correct? Yeah, I uh, went to high school in a little town on the West Coast in California called Lompoc. Uh, my, I'm a space brat, so my dad worked at Vandenberg Air Force Base there, and I couldn't wait to get out of town. So as soon as I got out of town, I took the first bus to the Coast Guard boot camp, uh, which was at that time in Petaluma, California. Um, I went to boot camp, uh, then was stationed on a ship in Honolulu, Hawaii. Uh, for a while, and then went to Radio Man School, got into the communications business, uh, and was did a lot of search and rescue communications. Um, spent six years in the Coast Guard uh, before they decided that I could no longer go to sea because I have Crohn's disease, uh, and uh, um, they kicked me out of the Coast Guard. So I took my disability uh, advantage and went to work for the U.S. Postal Service as a letter sorting machine operator. Basically, a little machine arm would drop one letter in front of me every second, and I would have a 20-key keyboard that I would type in either the first three numbers of the zip code or the last three numbers of the zip code. And uh, did that for four years. Couldn't stand it. Hated it. So uh, I decided I was going to get into the entertainment business uh, sometime around, uh, oh, I don't know, 1989. Yeah. And so what was the hardest part you'd say about transitioning from kind of that stable government job to kind of the more fluid employment is the nice way I'll say it of uh, working in media? I was married with three kids and a little older than most. Uh, I was about 29 at the time I had gone to full, full sale uh, down in Florida. And, uh, you know, so I was motivated to be successful immediately. Uh, those people who know about the entertainment industry, that isn't always the way that it is. Uh, you get into the ind- entertainment industry, you have to work your way up. Um, but I didn't have time for that because I had two kids uh, who at the time were, I believe, 10 and 8. So I was uh, I was motivated. So it was very, very hard. It was hard to to find a full-time job and be able to uh, to take care of my family and all that kind of stuff. But uh, I just persevered and, and I set out with the attitude that I was going to be the best that I could be at whatever they asked me to do. And hopefully somebody would hire me, which eventually they offered me a job. That's great. And to piggyback off something you just kind of brought up, uh, 
let's talk about Full Sail back in 1989. How was the culture and the education at that school at that time? And uh, to expound on that, how do you think it's different for those learning the craft now? Oh, Lord, uh, that's a deep subject. Uh, I will say that I was in either the first or second video and film class that Full Sail actually had. And at the time, Full Sail was in one small half block of Winter Park, Florida. Um, they had a, a very small television studio with a linear one-inch uh, post-production suite. They also had their their Neve uh, recording studio and a whole bunch of other smaller studios. At the time, Full Sail was very much a uh, recording engineering school. And since I have a background in songwriting and music, um, and, you know, uh, I... I I really went to Full Sail with the idea of being a recording engineer, um, but recognized that that I had a wife and kids to take care of, and so it was it, it was offered up or it was suggested that maybe I would enjoy going to this video and film program that they were just starting up at the time. It was called the. Uh, video and film comprehensive program. They weren't even giving out degrees back then. It was just a a, a nine to ten month. Uh, certificate program gave you all the basics of, of what you needed to get out into the world and, and start working. The number one thing that they taught back then that I will always remember is just having a good attitude and being willing to do just about anything you want to do. Today, you know, they're what five, six city blocks in in Greater Orlando uh, with with extra facilities outlying all over the place. Um, I'm really, really jealous, to be honest, uh, for the stu- of the students who get to go there now um, because they've got so many more tools and so many more resources for video and film than they ever had when I was there. Um, but by the same token, too, they're pushing many, many more kids through that school. So without actually going there, I, my impression is that... Um, you know, they're, the, with the volume of people that they're pushing through there, the kind of one-on-one attention that I got uh, and intense education that I got when I was going there versus what they've got going on now, I, I don't know how to compare it because I haven't experienced it. I, I, but I will say that, that uh, throughout my career, I've met several people who have been looking for jobs who were full-sale grads, and uh, it, there's a, a different culture and different attitude, I think, that comes out of the kids now than did back then. You know, for instance, uh, I would say that of my very small class of about 30 people, there's only five of us left working in the business in any way, shape, or form. Uh, the classes, I don't know what the classes are like at Full Sail now, but I'd be very interested to know what the ratio of actual working students is to uh, those who are out uh, shoveling ice cream while they're making their own uh, own independent films. And so I think one of the things I, I'm always most interested in when I talk to other professionals is when you're, you know, we get called and sometimes you have a, kind of a embarrassment of riches when you know when the iron strikes it's and it's hot like it's like you're you know you're you're almost double booking jobs are calling and then you kind of get those empty time periods where you know you you're begging for the phone to ring but you still kind of have to with your health issues and i share them um you have to be smart 
about what you choose to take and what you don't take, especially since you started, um, you were already a husband and a father to three. Uh, what was the process you had behind choosing which projects to take on and which ones you were going to decline as a freelancer? Um, well, so let me let me back up a little bit. Part of my um, graduation from Full Sail was that I had to do a three-month internship at a local production company or at any production company. Uh, I was very fortunate to get uh, hired by um, Boston Productions, uh, which was uh, right in the heart of Kenmore Square in Boston. Um, and, uh, you know, basically worked in several different capacities with those guys. Uh, I was a grip one day, I would do sound one day, I'd be an assistant editor one day. Um, and, and some days I would be the guy that takes a drive to Lowe's to get lumber for whatever set they were building in their very small studio. Boston Productions is no longer around, but back then, um, as soon as I got uh, done with my three work or three month internship, um, they offered me a job, full time job, but the money was not really what uh, I could afford to live on, and so I thought I could do better uh, as a uh, as a freelance. And the irony of it is, is that I did a lot of work as a freelance for Boston Productions back then, made more money as a freelance than I would have had I been on the staff. Granted, they didn't, um, you know, they didn't have to pay for insurance or, you know, health insurance or any of that kind of stuff. So, um, so I freelanced for about two years, two, three years. Uh, and then things got really, really tough. So, you know, I took a staff job and uh, worked my way up there. I'm getting a little off base here, but I think your original question, you want to go back and give me your original question? I apologize. Oh, no problem. Um, Yeah, I just, what was your thinking behind when you choose to take on a project versus when you decline it? So when a producer calls you up and says, hey, we have a a show coming to town for five days next week. Uh, We're going to be you know, shooting five hours from where you live, you'll need to come out. Um, what are the deciding factors when you choose to take on work? Is it usually the paycheck? Is it the content? Uh, is it the requirements? What is it that is kind of the go, no go in your decision making to take on work? Well, there's, there's a lot, right? Has a lot to do with it, obviously. Are they willing to pay what I ask them for? And, you know, there's a lot of, I, I have, purchased a lot of equipment over the years. So I have to rent out my equipment and, and my rate. Um, the, uh, I will work on just about any job. Uh, I don't think that there's anything that I wouldn't work on. I'm a professional enough that if I, let's say I were to get into a job where somebody might have a little difference with me politically, um, you know, it, that it, I, I'm professional enough to know that, that I can handle that. Um, you know, obviously, I wouldn't take on anything that, that uh, you know, would look bad on a resume. You know, I'm not going to go out there and, and, and I, I, I'm not interested in doing anything adult-oriented or anything like, the, you know, adult entertainment-oriented, um, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, so my decision, first, is based on my availability. Um, second, uh, are they able to pay the rate that I'm, I'm asking? And if not, is the job interesting enough to me that I am willing to take a little 
cut in pay to work on the job. And I would say that there have been a few times, uh, quite a few times uh, over my 20 or so years as a freelance where that's actually been the case. I will take on jobs not because it's money, but because it's a really interesting gig to me. You know, it sounds like an interesting gig to me. Some of these uh, uh, ghost hunter shows that I've worked on, the murder and mayhem shows, those are always very fun and interesting to work on. Um, I signed on to a long job uh, working for house hunters, uh, not house hunters, but uh, HGTV uh, working with Vernon Yip as he was building a house. Um, And I took a little bit of a cut and pay on that, but I knew it was going to be a long-term job. So I knew it was going to be good money over the course of eight months. And it was also a really interesting deal. And I got to work with two or three of my really good friends in Northwest Florida. So, you know, it's not always about the money. Sometimes it's about, um, you know, it's, it's just about the content and, and what's interesting to me. Let me, let me tell you one other thing. Uh, when I moved to Memphis at one point and I took a job there working on a, a pretty big TV show called uh, Sun Records, um, not as an A1, not as an A2, but as, a, as an audio utility. Um, and I took that job with a big cut in pay uh, for two reasons. One, I had just moved to Memphis and I wanted to meet some people from Memphis uh, who are in the film in- industry. Uh, and two, it was 76 days of, of guaranteed work. And uh, at the end of the day, I only ended up working a total of 15 days on that and never met anybody from Memphis because they were all from Nashville. So, you know, that was a calculated risk I took. But uh, at the end of the day, I, I still feel like I gained a, a great deal and I will be ever be forever grateful to Steve Greider, who was the uh, audio supervisor on that uh, for uh, for hiring me and then giving me a get out of jail free card when I decided that I could make more money doing something else. So a lot of, uh, I'd say most of the people who I have listening to this podcast, they, they tune in for creatives and, and different approaches and mindsets in different fields. So they, you know, while you and I are both sound mixers, they, they might not have, you know, the same depth of knowledge in it. But one thing I think that would be fun to clear up is um, what's one common myth about working in television that you know, and uh, better if it's specific to sound mixers? That's a that's an interesting question, uh, and as, as you know, I I spent fifteen plus years uh, working as a producer, camera operator, director, uh, all the stuff before I decided to concentrate on just being a sound mixer. So my perspective is a little bit different um, in in that respect. Um, the I, I totally lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. No, it's fine. Ask, ask me the question again real quick so I can... Yeah, what's one common myth about working in television? That you're going to be a director as soon as you walk on the set. <laughs> I think, uh, and, and this is more towards students, I think everybody thinks that, you know, they go to film school or they go to Full sale, or they, they, you know, they have that, that they're automatically going to be a director. Um, and they... They are not. Um, uh, they're not going to jump in and be running the show right away. So I think that's a big myth uh, for students. I think for everybody else, they think that you know it's all fun and games, and we're working in the entertainment industry, and we're always working with movie stars and stuff like that. But to be honest with you, I've made more money 
in this industry not being famous than anybody else, uh, than anything else, I should say. Um, I, I've made a lot of lot of money in this business not being famous, not working on big jobs, you know, working on corporate jobs that nobody will ever see, you know, except the people who are working at, at some medical lab in Boston, you know. So uh, you can make a good living in the in the film and television business without ever doing a TV show or a film. That has 100% been my experience as well. Yeah, especially when you brought up the uh, the pharmaceutical and medical, uh, they've never they've never tried to bring down a, a day rate for me, and I don't think I've ever had one of those jobs go over three hours. I will tell you that I I typically uh, get paid more for the corporate and non broadcast stuff. Um, the the cor- the broadcast guys are you know they're always looking to get the most they can for the for the least amount of money, and you can't blame them as a producer. I understand that logic. Um, you know, as a sound guy, I'm I'm always trying to get as much as I can for for the work that I do. So, yeah, that's a that's a big part of part of it. And and to be honest with you, uh, those corporate gigs can be highly highly fascinating. Um, I remember one gig in particular going in to uh, Harvard. Uh, to one of their, excuse me, not Harvard, MIT, uh, and we were doing a corporate gig uh, that had to do with the uh, with the early space race, and we were actually interviewing one of the women uh, who crunched all the numbers for the Apollo uh, thirteen disaster. So uh, that was really, really fascinating for me. I don't know that that will ever see broadcast, and it, but yet it was still such a great job. Love that job. Yeah, I've I've had some jobs I've I've really really loved, and I've never seen that footage anywhere. I don't know if it's ever finished. And sometimes you you listen to some interviews, and you know it's just part of the overall story. And uh, you know it, sometimes it's not even your work. Sometimes it's you know just watching the cinematographer work, and you know the lighting like that. It looks really great. I'd love to see how that looks. You know after everything's done, but it's for an in-house thing. You'll never see or never have. A chance to see the final product. Yeah, I think uh, one of one of the things that I've really made an effort to do as I work for all these different companies is uh, maintain the line of open lines of communications with the producers uh, who also move around in the industry a lot. So um, you know, I try and follow up with producers, you know, five to six months after a shoot. So that I can uh, find out if the show I worked on is going to air and when it's going to air or see if I can get a copy or a link to see the work that they did uh, with the with the interview that I I recorded um, or, you know, the the footage that I shot. So, yeah, I I think it's kind of important to stay in touch with the people that you work with, not only for being able to see what your projects are going to look like later, but also that opens the door for you to say, hey, I'm available for work. I love it. So I have the next question is kind of to hopefully not to put you on the spot, but it's kind of like I said at the, the top of the show, you are definitely one of the people I consider to have been one of my key mentors in my my career. And uh, so I kind of wanted to turn around and say, who are maybe three people who have been integral to your growth and success in your career? Uh, And then after that, how would you advise people newer to the field to foster similar types of relationships? Uh, That's a, that's a good question. I can't, I don't like to narrow it down to, to 
just one or two people. Uh, but I will tell you that, that, uh, a good friend of mine, James Hadcroft, who used to run the Bourne Community Access Television Station while I was still working at the post office, opened the doors to me to the Bourne Community TV Station. I was able to, to make my own TV and that's where I got the bug. Second guy is a guy named John Todd from HT Recording Studio uh, in Orleans, Massachusetts. I'm, and uh, he's no longer in business, but I, I just recently saw him. And he opened his recording studio to me, uh, worked with me on a couple of really cool projects. And he was the one who inspired me to get into recording engineering because he said he sat there and showed me how his board worked. And, and we recorded a bunch of different projects and things like that. So I always you know, give props to, to uh, John Todd and James Hadcroft for getting me into this business. Um, I, I look at one of the teachers at school who inspired me at Full Sail uh, was a guy named Roberto Velez, um, who was at the time the post-production supervisor. I think he's now in charge of the digital media program there, but I'm not, not exactly sure. But he was always uh, a, a great mentor, always had good things to to say to me, I learned a lot from him. Uh, and, and later in life, I actually ended up hiring Herberto to do some voiceover for me because he's he's from Puerto Rico and I needed Spanish speaking voiceovers and Herberto was my man. So uh, so there's that. And then along the way, I have just, uh, you know, uh, everybody I work with is a mentor for me at some point or another, including you, Travis, um, uh, because I, I learn I make it a point to learn something from everybody I meet the, from, from the, the PA who's on his first set to the grizzled old DP who's been doing it for 30 years. I, I try and listen and learn from everybody. Uh, and the minute that you stop having that kind of an attitude, uh, you might as well get out of the business because if you think that you've learned everything there is to do in this business, uh, then, then why are you still in it? I'm 60 years old. Well, I'm going to be 60 in October. I haven't learned, but maybe two thirds of what I need to know to do this job properly. Uh, so I'm always learning. I'm, and I, I, I really appreciate guys like you that, yes, I, I was able to help out. Uh, Kevin Almodovar is another guy that, that I, I really appreciate. I was always able to help Kevin out. And, and you know, as a mentor um, or a teacher, your students, your mentees, at some point, they surpass you. They, they move past the level. They take all the information that you have to give them, and then they get information from other, um, you know, from other sources, other people. And all of a sudden, I start calling Travis for questions about microphones or Kevin about director of photography stuff or, or just lighting stuff. Or, you know, just the other day, I called R.J. Murdoch because... I needed uh, answers about a specific program that um, that that we've been using for years, but I haven't used it in a while because I haven't done any video editing in a while. And so, you know, I learn from everybody. I think it's wonderful. I think that's I think that's wisdom, and uh, I think that's what you, what you said is you know that's that is a, probably one of the number one attitudes and, and pieces of advice I hope people take away from this episode is regardless of what field you're in, no matter what level you are in that field, always be open, always learn from everyone. Uh, and the moment you stop learning is the moment you stop progressing. Yeah. And, you know, uh, don't be afraid to 
ask questions, but know when to ask questions, you know? And, and that's one of the things that I learned at Full Sail early on is that never be afraid to ask the question, but there's, there are right and wrong times to ask the questions. If you've, if you've got, you know, a helicopter shot going on, <laughs> you know, and somebody's hanging out the side of a window, it's not necessarily the time to be asking about which lens they're using, you know what I'm saying? So, so you have to be judicious about gathering that information, but don't be afraid to ask. Um, and the other thing that I've learned is that if you present yourself on set as a guy who is willing to learn and willing to do, people are willing to share, you know, but if you present yourself as, oh, I know all that, you know, or, or, or I, you don't need to tell me how to boom this shot. I, I got it. You know, uh, I, I, I'm not sure that I want to ex- expend a whole lot of energy training someone who's not willing to learn. You know, and by the same token, too, you know, there are people in this industry who are not willing to share their information. And so I've made, uh, you know, made a lot of choices on jobs that I take based on the people that are working with and whether or not they're, you know, free with their information. Um, so, you know, I, I, I surround myself with people of like mind who are collaborative, willing to share their information, are not going to be threatened by me or, you know, uh, not threaten me in any way. And I don't mean that physically. I just mean, you know, it, you know, as much as, as I like you, Travis, I don't think you'll ever, you and I will ever be competition because you're down in Florida and I'm, I'm up here, you know, um, and even if you were up here, it, it wouldn't matter. I don't feel threatened by you because we have this symbiotic uh, collaborative relationship. Absolutely. Yeah, that's how I feel about it, even with the, the, the sound mixers that are still down in this area. You know, uh, typically the calls I get are not the same calls they would get. And the calls that they're called for, those people don't typically call me. But when one of us isn't available, we do refer out to the others. You know, so it is, like you said, it's more symbiotic than competitive. Yeah, I think I think that that having a good network of people who are willing to to share and learn uh, is is maybe the number one thing that has helped me to be successful. And the next thing I want to talk about is uh, weighing in on one of the more hot topic controversies, if you go on the forums, and that is the kind of buy versus rent debate for those that kind of get into this industry and want to join in as a as a soundy on set so how important is it to you to own your gear and uh i think at the rate of technology change because especially on the sound side it would we had a lot longer interval between massive upgrades in our technology more than so like camera departments um in recent years You've hit on the you've hit on the exact reason why I became a full time sound guy and got away from producing and and shooting and having my own production company. When uh, there there was an interval there where I was a uh, staff producer for an agency here on Cape Cod. They provided all their equipment and that was great. When I left them and went out on my own, the first thing I did was I bought everything I needed to do whatever I needed on my own. A camera, a couple cameras, uh, some uh, some sound equipment, you know, lighting, all that stuff. And I, I did very well with it for a while. But cameras kept changing. 
you know, every, it seemed like every week there was a new camera coming out. And then, and, and this was before HD really became prevalent. And then HD came out and then they were coming up with new cameras and all the cameras had different formats and they couldn't get them together. And you could edit some projects in, in one uh, platform, but you couldn't edit in the other because the codecs didn't match. So, uh, and then DSLRs came out. And once DSLRs came out, the barrier to entry uh, as a video producer uh, got very low. It didn't cost much. For, for two, $3,000, you could buy a, some lights, an uh, inexpensive sound kit, and a, a decent camera that shot HD. And so all these guys, you know, all these jobs that I was doing down in Northwest Florida where I was being full-time producer – um, I, and I was charging, you know, what I felt was very good rate for, let's say for a 30 second commercial somewhere between three and $5,000, you know, all of a sudden there were a bunch of kids fresh out of film school with a DSLR, a microphone, and maybe one or two lights going out and taking the same jobs, uh, away from me. And, and I just couldn't compete at those low rates and didn't want to compete at those low rates. I'd worked so hard to get there. So I got into the sound business. And I sold all my camera stuff, bought what I felt I needed to get started in this business, which was basically a 552, uh, which was a, a stereo recorder with five channels. I bought three microphones and a boom pole uh, or three lavalier mics and, and a boom pole with a shotgun mic and and was off to the races. Um, I rarely rented any of my gear because I felt like I could depend on the gear that I bought. Uh, whereas you never know what you're going to get from a rental company or borrowing from a friend. Sometimes, you know, it comes in great. Sometimes it doesn't. For the most part, they come in great, but every now and then you run into problems. So as technology progressed and as the call for jobs became more and different for me, I needed to upgrade my equipment, get to a bigger multi-track recorder, buy some more microphones and things like that. Um, you know, so that I could, could be competitive and I could be bidding on these other jobs and start working on some of the bigger broadcast stuff that, that they were bringing guys in from Atlanta or up from Miami to do, you know, uh, on the Emerald Coast. I, I, I had to get that kind of equipment to compete. So it was worth it to me to, to buy it. But the one, one philosophy that I've always had about equipment is that I don't buy it unless I can afford it and I have the money to do it. I, I just, I, you know, I don't want to go into Hawk for, for equipment if I don't have to. It's, it's just kind of the way I was brought up, I guess. But uh, um, so I'll be honest with you, I haven't changed my um, mixer now. I think my mixer is maybe seven, eight years old. Um, my microphones are all, you know, within that same range, uh, you know, so I've got what I, I've got a pretty complete bag right now with what is considered state of the art microphones and transmitters and receivers and mixers and all that kind of stuff. Um, should I upgrade? Probably. Will I upgrade when it's necessary? Um, would I rent if I needed to? Absolutely. I have, there are times when I have jobs where, where I rent out gear, but wherever possible, I try not to rent it out because I've had more than one really bad experience with renting from, from companies. I worked on a big reality show 
where where we had 15 or so people on camera, two mixers, and I was the audio supervisor. And they required me to use the gear that they rented from a fairly uh, well-known video rental corporation. Um, and they uh, uh, sent me less than adequate gear. And uh, it, it hosed us for the job. It really did. And so I do my best not to rent unless I absolutely have to. And uh, so here's our, before we get to our, our last big topic, I do have one other question for you, kind of going back, giving advice. So if you could go back and give yourself a piece of advice before your very first day on set, what would it be? Find something you love to do. Figure out a way to get paid for it and you'll never work again the rest of your life. I, I mean, it's as simple as that. And, and I'm pretty lucky. You know, I was able to do that. Uh, it sounds a little trite. A lot of people say that, but it is absolutely true. Um, I, I look back on my career and, and the kind of mistakes that people make um, professionally and, and, and personally, uh, I, I've been fairly lucky that I haven't made any major mistakes, but, uh, you know, they're there. As a producer, I would say to myself, pay attention to deadlines. As a sound guy, I say to myself, have fun, man. You only get this job once. And now for our big topic. Uh, how do you think, you know, the, the novel cor- uh, coronavirus, COVID-19, is going to affect our work in the TV film industry as a whole moving forward? Moving forward, I think there's going to be a slow rollout. I'm already getting calls. In fact, I'm booked to do a job next week. Uh, for an HD, HGTV show. Um, and uh, they have sent me all sorts of uh, paperwork. Uh, they're requiring me to get a COVID test before I get on the set. Um, they're, you know, making precautions for me uh, in terms of making sure that I have all the personal protective equipment that I need, masks, gloves, anything that I need. They will pay for the COVID test if I have to, if I have to pay for it. Um, ultimately, uh, what I feel is that the states and the studios are all, uh, they seem to be collaborating on what, uh, what needs to be done to get everybody out there safely. Are there people out there who are just going out willy-nilly and doing it? Yeah. But, uh, you know, I think that the onus is on us as the employees of these production companies to ensure that we feel 100% safe going back to work. Um, Early on in the whole lockdown, I actually had a job uh, working on uh, The Masked Singer. Uh, for one day, I had to do a, an interview that was uh, with a very famous uh, football player. And, uh, um, you know, they required us to, to, to have masks and we, it was uh, lavalier only. They didn't want to hang a boom. They wanted me to make sure that everything was wiped down. Um, as it turns out, the guy that we were working with was not nearly as worried about it as the, uh, as the studio was, but I really respected that the studio sent me this whole list of, of uh, things that I needed to do 
not only for the protection of myself, but the protection of, of the talent. And, and what was even better is that the talent made a point to say something to me and the camera operator that was a very small crew about how much they appreciated that, that we were wearing personal protective equipment and that, that, you know, I cleaned the microphone off in front of him. You know, I made a big show of, of, of showing him that I cared about his safety. And I think moving forward, that's something that we're going to have to do as, as sound people, as makeup people, anybody who, you know, have to get within six feet of people. We need to be respectful to these people and understand that they're just as scared about getting this silly thing as we are. Yeah, I agree. And I think we're going to have a, a bit of a recoil as we get up to speed with the industry. But I, I think a lot of these hygienical things that we're taking with our kits, I know uh, some of the, the shows and people getting back up, they're, they're parsing out kits so that there's never sharing of transmitter or love crossing between talent at any point on a show now. Um, you know, in, in the past, what I've been able to do is I can, if we have, say, uh, seven talent, but if no more than, say, four are mic'd at a time, well, I can get by with only having four or five uh, lobs and transmitters in my kit, but now I probably wouldn't be able to take that job because they would want you to have one dedicated to each person unless it's a separate day on set where everything can be cleaned between. So I'm wondering if that is going to be something that fades away in time or if that's just going to be new standard operating procedure moving forward for uh for health procedures well yeah you know like the like the little plastic plexiglass in the in the stores and you know uh, uh all these other little measures in in restaurants and stuff like that i i think that there's going to be a new paradigm here i i think there's going to be a change and some of these things that they're putting into effect now are, are going to stay with us. You know, uh, are we going to be required to carry 15 labs in our kit, you know, because we've got 15 guys? I don't know. Um, I, I kind of doubt it. I, I personally uh, will, will rent, but I will rent with an extra day attached so that if I have, so that I can clean it up just like I would my own gear to, for my for my own personal uh, satisfaction that the gear is clean, anything that I'm handing over to somebody else is going to be clean, as clean as if I owned it myself. So, you know, there are things that are going to change. Um, I, I, I'm of the mindset, by the way, that, um, you know, we're not over this by a long shot. Um, is it too early for the, for the entertainment industry to be opening up? I, I, I don't think it's too early. I, I think we're opening up just on time as long as we do it safely. But I fear that some of the cities like down in Florida, maybe in New York uh, or, or Atlanta, where they've quickly uh, opened up the state and there's a lot of people coming in and out and you know, there's the the chance that uh, um, people who don't know they're infected are going to reinfect it. You know, we're starting this this curve down, but it's coming back up. And we can talk for days about you know really what's going to happen with COVID. 
And I think where the production industry is concerned, you know, it, it feels to me like everybody is, is being highly cautious. I mean, I, I think production companies are making sure that they have the right insurance so their workers are protected, so talent is protected. Um, I really loved reading an article the other day about what Tyler Perry is doing with his talent, flying them in on private jets and, and you know, making sure that they're, they feel 100% safe on the whole thing. And I think if people follow those examples, uh, the, the film Florida people have been unbelievable in terms of how well they've done with creating some guidelines, which I think they were a little ahead of the power curve on all that stuff. Um, it, it's interesting to me. Because uh, I, I haven't seen much from any of the other states that I've, I've worked in, but the film Florida people have just really, really been ahead of the power curve and with good, sensible guidelines for opening up. So I hope that what I really want to see is everybody get kind of on the same page. Because right now, I think people are still just kind of winging it, trying to figure out what the best way they can get, get their productions rolling again. You know, there's a lot of money that's not being made right now. Yeah, I agree. Um, and People are, you know, they're eager to get back to work. They're eager to get productions. You know, we're losing a lot. There's only, I think, so much time before productions shift back into gear before they have to, I think, be just canceled um, permanently and just skipped over. I think they do have a shelf life. I, uh, some things can be shelved indefinitely and then gone back, but I think uh, you certainly wouldn't be able to go back with the exact crew, you know, regardless of if the production starts back up, certain crew won't be able to join back with it. So as long as we ease back into it and ease back into it smarter, I, I think it's it's fine to start doing that. Um, I think we're going to start seeing a shift in maybe how much travel crew is brought in. You know, they might start trying to hire more local crews maybe because of this. So they're not having people travel uh, as much um, during this time. And then perhaps they we might see a, a slightly extended approach to keeping crews as small as possible um, here for the next year before they start enlarging again. I absolutely agree with you. I feel like there's a, uh, um, there, there's a trend. There, there's been a little bit of a trend for that uh, already. Uh, we lucked out uh, in in some respect that that this COVID nineteen thing really started ramping up around November December of last year when everybody goes on hiatus anyway, uh, and the shows kind of shut down for the holidays and all that kind of stuff. And then when they came back up, the the doors and and, and you know people were starting to open doors up. You know, these productions were, they, for me, was right about the time, you know, they normally kind of get rolling in, in March is when my phone starts ringing again, you know, sometimes early, early February, but in March. Um, and so, you know, we haven't lost a whole lot of time, but I think because, especially if you look into the reality TV world, where people have to go into restaurants or going to other people's homes or, you know, I, I, I doubt you're going to see the big kind of MTV spring break kind of garbage that we used to see um, very much, uh, you know, or big concerts and things like that. I think there's still a lot of great big questions out there um, that, that have yet to be answered, um, you know, and everybody's looking to everybody else 
you know, for for leadership um, and and for suggestions on how to do it. I think it's ultimately going to end up being a collaboration between the people who want the production done and the people who do the production. Uh, I, I think guys like you and me, uh, you know, if we get out onto a set and we find ourselves in a unsafe environment, you know, the onus is on us, not the production company, not the, it, you know, the film Florida or anybody like that. It's on us to make sure that we tell the people that we are working for that we don't feel safe and why we don't feel safe. And it has, and, and it's not just COVID-19. It's, it's anything. I've, I've worked on two or three shows where I've, I've been in the middle of the really, really bad part of Mobile or, you know, bad part of Memphis. Uh, and, and had it not been for the fact that we had three armed cops with us, I would feel very unsafe and wouldn't want to be rolling around that town. So, you know, we have to be the guardians of our own safety. I agree. Nicely said. And uh, I wanted to thank you one more time for joining us in the podcast today, Steve. Thank you for sharing your thoughts and your process with us. Uh, if our listeners want to find you and ask you some questions or, or see some of the work you've been part of, where could they do that? Um, well, my website is uh, stevebakersoundguide.com. All my contact information is on there. Um, I take phone calls and emails from just about anybody who will call me. Um, and, and will share just about any information I have in my head with just about anybody. Um, so that's, that's the best way I'm, I'm on Facebook. Uh, I'm not a real Twitter guy. Um, but I'm, I'm out there. All you gotta do is look for Steve Baker sound guy and you'll find me eventually. Thanks for being here, Steve. Hey, can I say one last thing? Absolutely. I'm very, very proud of you. It's been a real pleasure being a mentor to you. Uh, and it's been an equally pleasant journey as you've surpassed me in a lot of things that I do. And and we've become less mentor-mentee and more colleagues. And that's my goal with everybody that I work with. And I'm very proud of you and all the other guys down there in, in Northwest Florida, but you in particular. It means the world to me, Steve. And I'm not sure about... Uh quite catching up or surpassing you yet i think maybe give me another 20 years to maybe get close but uh, i've got a lot more to learn saying i'm old <laughs> no i'm <laughs> no because i would be to even get close to you i think i would be yeah i would be your age to even start approaching it so yeah no i think i'm just behind the curve still <laughs> but i am i am driving and, and it's because of people like you that i've had uh, any opportunity to to kind of be where i am and i've I hope that I've been able to pass that along and, and keep that same attitude for sharing and teaching and encouraging those that are getting into the industry. I guarantee you it will come back to you tenfold. I guarantee it. Thanks again. And for anybody uh, who is joining us and would like to learn more about Creatives Incorporated, visit creativesincorporated.com and find episodes now on Spotify, Google Podcast, Anchor, Breaker, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, and coming soon to Apple Podcasts. See you later. <laughs> <laughs>